Amen. Thanks, Christian. And without further ado, it's been a while. Here's Todd. <laughs> How's everybody doing? Doing good? Well, things definitely changed a little bit this week, didn't it, in Southern California? It was, it was, just, it was so funny. Did anybody else, like, um, like, go somewhere and, like, feel like you're supposed to have, like, a mask around you or something? It's just, like, it was so weird this week, I think, to kind of feel that way. But super thankful that uh, I just think God's doing a work. He has these scientists and things that have brilliant minds that can think up things like, uh, how to vaccinate us, do different things like that. God is just so good, and I love God so much, just beyond just the fact that he saved us. It's our God is doing a work in this world. So all, all you dads out there, happy Father's Day. <clears throat> I was thinking about it the other day. Um, for those of you that didn't really grow up in the, like, 90s and 2000s, maybe the 80s, Usually the dad figures, like way back in the, you know, in the olden days, like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, for those of you that are like really super old, I'm kidding. But it was like Ward Cleaver, right? And it was, um, I don't know, Father Knows Best, I can't even think what his name is, right? But they were these great dads. And then for those of us that grew up in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, it was like Homer Simpson and, you know, Ed Bundy off of Married with Children. And I am so thankful that stereotype of a man is getting blown out of the water and God is renewing again, you know, just the idea of fatherhood. And let me just say this, to all of us dads that are out there, don't forget, we represent in a very powerful way who God the Father is to our children. And so we are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we're so thankful that because of the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, he is perfecting us to be the man that God's called us to be. So happy Father's Day to all of you. Now, here's what we're going to be doing today. If you got your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Peter 1. We're going to start down just a series in and through 1 Peter. Um, I'll, I'll kind of explain it as we go along. But a lot of this stems from just something that happened to me while I was kind of wrestling through kind of what are we supposed to do kind of after crisis is over? Like, that was the question I was asking myself, right? Because I feel like everybody's kind of settling down a little bit, and there's this, this, this back end of crisis in which now, what is this church supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? What has God called us to be engaged in? And so that's kind of the question that I'm going to ask. Now, it came from, and I'm not going to get this quote exact, because I was, just, I was watching this guy, a psychologist on TV, or a lady, and she said something like this. She said, after a major event in our lives, we're prone to battle with our identity, or we wonder who we are, where we came from. We wrestle with what we actually believe and why we do so. And whether we know it or not, that struggle with who we are was already in us. However, it took a major event in our lives to dislodge it into our consciousness. And when it comes to the forefront, the outcome is a crisis of identity. Now we might say, well, I don't know, you know what, do you, what do you mean by this? But what I mean by this is, is that everybody right now is trying to figure out who we are. And in many ways, you're trying to figure out who you are after this kind of last year. We're kind of all in this place where we're not sure where we stand politically. We're not sure where we stand on different societal issues. Everybody's kind of trying to feel it out just a little bit. In the midst of all of it, this is what this psychologist was talking about. It's just there's something in us that we're just, we're kind of trying to, again, understand who am I and why am I here? But I would say this, what's nutty is, is it's not only us personally or maybe even our friendships. I mean, does anybody else have friendships that are kind of destroyed because of the last year? 
But I even look in some ways like our nation as a whole is in this awkward identity crisis. We kind of can't figure out who we are. Now, one of the greatest things I think about God's word is it always speaks into things. And this is exactly what I believe Peter is going to do for us in 1 Peter. He's a man that understood how difficult it was. In fact, by this time in his life, he's probably in his mid to upper 60s. He's kind of just been there, done that. He's seen it. And he's writing to a group of people that, if you look at 1 Peter 1, and I'll go ahead and have them throw that up there, they're a group of people that were in what was called the dispersion. They were in all these places across northern Turkey. That's what all those places are. But they were also kind of just figuring out what are we supposed to do because in the midst of their persecution, they'd gotten scattered. And as they got scattered all over the place trying to figure out who the people were that they're supposed to fellowship and why they're supposed to fellowship with them, they just were kind of in the midst of kind of a crisis, an identity, kind of an identity crisis. And what's so incredible about God's word is that Peter's not just writing to us as a guy that's kind of an older man that's figured out life. If you look in there, he's writing to us as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which means this is way more than just advice. This is authoritative truth from God that has come to us now to explain to us in the midst of life as we walk through it, this is how you walk through these things. This is how we do it. Now, there's two words in there this morning I want you to get a hold of that are so important to where we're going to go. And by the way, I think they are two words that we need now as followers of Jesus Christ more than anything that, that attach to our identity or who we are as followers of Jesus. He writes in there, he says, from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, what are the two words? Here's what I want you to remember in the back of your head, and if you're taking notes, write these down. The words that I think we need more than anything right now are this idea of elect exiles. Those are two words. Now, we're going to unpack them together because they're, they're words that are a little bit foreign to us maybe as we kind of wrestle in through what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But we're going to ask that question. If we really are kind of in the midst of crisis coming out of it, what is it that we need to embrace as people if we're going to be the people God's called us to be? And the very first thing that he says to him that kind of encapsulates the whole letter, which encapsulates this, these particular two verses, is he just calls them this group of people called elect exiles. So let's wrestle with that. What's, let's, let's wrestle with that by looking at these two words and let's break them apart. Here's the first word, exile. Now what in the world is an exile? Well, on some levels, right, whenever we see the term exile, we'll think of somebody that got booted out, somebody that maybe that doesn't belong in our group. So we, in some ways, we, we shun them by kicking them out of the group, or maybe you're like Napoleon Bonaparte who got kicked out of your country to go to an island only to escape on it and to come back again. In other words, he was called an exile. Maybe even for some of us, we've read the Old Testament like in the Minor Prophets, and we've caught this idea that exiles are people that that God doesn't have their favor on in a unique any way anymore, and so he turns them over to these Gentile kings and countries to, to bring them back to himself. But in this particular context, that's not what he's talking about, and here's what I want us to get about this idea of exile. 
To be an exile is to be one who no longer belongs in the culture to which they are. There's somebody that just doesn't belong in the culture to which they, they are. They just don't fit. Now what I mean by that is, is, is I don't know if you, any of you that are maybe a little bit older remember when you first came to know Jesus Christ. When I first came to know Jesus at 21 or 22, I remember coming to know Jesus, being forgiven of my sins, embraced by Jesus Christ now as one of his sons, and I wanted all of my friends to know about Jesus. I had six other guys that were my friends, and I was convinced if they just understood what I do now about Jesus Christ, oh my gosh, every last one of them are going to follow Jesus. I took out my first friend, Dewey, and we sat down, and, I, and, and I've told you this before, it was called the Sermon on the Loft, you know, and I didn't even know what I was saying, but I started preaching Jesus at him, and I remember him looking back at me going, well, I want to follow Jesus, and I'm thinking, this whole sharing Jesus with friends things is easy. But as I went to other five, I didn't get the same response. In fact, I got looked at like I was weird. My appetites changed. Things just weren't the same anymore. I didn't, I didn't want some of the things that I used to like. I, I no longer wanted to go out and kind of hit the party scene anymore. I didn't, I didn't want to engage in going after the various lusts of my flesh anymore. Suddenly inside of me, which Peter's going to talk about when he gets to chapter 2, I remember the first time I caught just the truths of God's word, I couldn't get enough of it. And I was like that newborn baby that he talks about in 1 Peter 2, 2, just soaking up the truths of God's word. But I remember I just didn't fit. Not only didn't fit, but for those of you again that came to know Jesus Christ, did you ever notice that life got a little bit harder? Yep. Holy cow. Everything about life suddenly kind of got a difficultness to it. I remember going out with one of the guys that was discipling me and I said, hey man, why is it that after I came to know Jesus Christ, things got more difficult? He goes, because you came to know Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> in that, one of the things that Peter's going to convince us of is not only that we're different, not only that we have new tastes and new desires, but the moment that we come to know Jesus Christ, a reality of who we are is that life is just going to become a little bit more difficult. That's what we talked about in, in John 14 through 17. Remember, Jesus had this whole idea laid out to him. He said, look, those of you that are mine, the world is going to hate you. The world's not going to like you. This message that you're bringing of hope in Jesus Christ is not going to be a message that's going to be readily accepted. It's going to be hard. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 12, if you, you, can, you can look there if you want to, but he, he lays out this idea that don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's come upon you. What's so interesting in watching this last year or year and a quarter is how many Christians have thought, why is this so hard? I think Peter would look at all of us and say, why isn't it harder? Anytime you look at the life of God's people, even in the life of Jesus Christ in which he came to this earth, it just isn't going to be easy. 
There is a whole world and a whole system that is anti what we are proclaiming of who Jesus Christ is. There's, there's a true Satan that we're going to come to later on in 1 Peter 5. It says that it's like a roaring lion that's seeking whom he may devour. If that sounds like simple and easy, then you do not understand what Peter is saying. It is just going to be hard. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus right now, do you want to follow Jesus? Now, I think there's more to this that I can't wait to share with you. But the moment that you, the Bible talks about, became a follower of Jesus Christ and you were born again, this whole world and its system that is set up against who is God is now working against you. And we've got to get that in our minds. Now, we can't be weird. You know, I've also watched a ton of weird stuff on, on YouTube and different things over this last year. This weird, awkward, martyrs complex of Christians sitting there going, oh, woe is me. Shush. We're going to talk about it in a bit. Your kids are the king. You don't sit there and grovel and complain. But there's this, this side of it. It is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. To be someone who is in exile automatically has that reality in it. There's no escaping it. Now, if I told you that again, well, then who wants to be a follower of Jesus? I mean, if that's all there is, then whew, And I love the fact that then Peter throws in a second term he calls elect. Now, everybody listen to me. I want you to listen closely. This term elect oftentimes gets thrown around kind of in, in discussions in and through maybe salvation. And again, it's a very true statement about salvation. But this idea is so much bigger than what I think we realize when it says that God has elected us. What it means is he has chosen us. And he hasn't just chosen us like in the fact that we don't go to hell anymore. Notice he connects it to exiles and his whole point is, is that he has chosen us now to be exiles. Before the foundations of the world, that's what this idea of elect means. Before we even were a little, you know, glimmer in our mama's eye, before we were anything, God the Father looked through time and here's what's so exciting about this word elect. He chose you if you were a follower of Jesus. He chose you. That's crazy. He didn't choose you because you were so wonderful. He didn't choose you because you were so great. In fact, the whole idea behind election, you'll see this like in Ezekiel 16 when God came upon Israel whom he had elected and he said, there you were, he said like this little baby and he even uses this term squirming in your blood. There was nothing beautiful about you. But the idea is, is that he chose them to be his very own. The word elect isn't a word just as far as a concept that we believe. It is a word that says God absolutely adores those who he chooses. In fact, in there, in verse 6, he said, man, when I looked down on Israel, they're squirming their blood. He said, all I could look at them and say was, Live. In fact, he says it again, live. To be chosen by God is to be an object of his absolute adoring love. He in love chose us to be exiles. 
Now, in order for us to get this idea of what it means to be elect, then he throws in three prepositional phrases. And again, this is just me geeking out, but I want to show you these three prepositional phrases so you get the fullness of it. The first one is in verse 2. I want you to look down there. It says, according to. And then he lays out this idea. If you could go to 1 Peter. He lays out this idea of according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What's foreknowledge? Well, in some ways, it just means to have knowledge of beforehand. Now, again, the problem is we tend to think of this only in one realm, in this idea of our salvation. But the idea is, and especially like when you connect it to Psalm 139, God knows the exact day in which every one of us in this room will be born. He knows the exact day in which every one of us in this room he will eventually call home. And in all of God's story, as he writes it and then writes those of us that are is into it, he knows every last intimate detail of everything about your life. There is nothing that our God does not know. He knows every last bit of it. He knows the ups of our lives and he knows the downs of our lives. He knows when we're going to go through times of tribulation and difficulty and he knows the times that are going to be the most joyous. Every facet of it in some powerful way in this cosmic rulership of God over all things, he knows. If I go through cancer, he knows. If I hit the downside of walking with my children through some of the most difficult moments of their lives, he knows. He knew the fact of who's going to be president and who's not going to be president. He knew what this world was going to look like in the midst of a pandemic. And for some amazing reason, in his foreknowledge, it didn't just kind of happen. He took all of us who were followers of Jesus, and he put us in this time, in this place, right now, as this group of people who are elect exiles. He knows. He knows. Everything. There is nothing about you that our God does not know. That means even if you are asked to walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, you could, the reason you can fear no evil is because you know that God knows. God is never caught by surprise. Have you ever thought about that? Oh, that's crazy to me. The other day, my, my oldest son was sitting around waiting for somebody to scare and he comes into me, you know, and he's got that look, you know, as a, as a teenager, and he's like, Shh, I'm going to scare so-and-so, you know, and I'm like, oh. And I remember them walking in, and he scared them, right, you know, and they jumped out of their mind. God's never been scared. He knows. Our God knows. We as followers of Jesus, and this is what he's doing as exiles, is he's making sure that we understand and we have now a confidence that this electing love, this passionate love for us when he asks us, asks us to go through difficulty, our God knows. But it's not just that. That's, that's the first prepositional phrase. Here's the second prepositional phrase. He says, not only is it according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but it's in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, what's sanctification? 
Well, sanctification just means to set you apart, just to make you distinct, to make you other, to put you on display in some kind of a way. What is absolutely nutty is not only did he have the foreknowledge or know everything, but he chose us knowing us, warts and all, that he was going to make us his very own, and he was going to clean us up through the work and the power of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, and then also through the power of the Holy Spirit to make us beautiful, to show us off to the world. This last year, whether we knew it or not, God was putting his people on display. Every last one of you in here are displayers. You were created in the image of God. And when the Holy Spirit came inside of you suddenly, and this is what Peter is going to argue all the way throughout, you now have the capacity to do good. And in your capacity to do good, you are going to be displayed, he talks about in 1 Peter 2.9. We are going to be this announcement of God to the world. And in being this announcement of God to the world, the world is going to in some way stand before God one day and he's going to look at them based upon how they reacted to us as followers of Jesus. And this is the other thing is, he is going to change us. He's going to make us different. Philippians 1.6 said, he who began a good work in you will what? Complete it. Now, for some of us, it's like, okay, we're going to go the easy way, and then there's other of us that are going to go the hard way. But the promise of God is, is that in some way and in some fashion and in some form, what he began when he elected you, made you his very own, and decided that he was going to put you on display is that he is going to change you. It's going to make you different. This is what I mean, your, your, your taste buds got differently, your way in which you saw the world got different. Everything began to change about you because the moment you embraced Jesus, the world just got different. You saw it through new lenses. And the whole reality of it is, is he's gonna change us even up to the very end finally when he calls us home and makes us his very own when finally in that moment we will be changed and transformed to look like Jesus Christ. I am so thankful that my transformation is not dependent upon me alone. If God didn't initiate the work and do the work and carry out the work and continue it even when I wasn't faithful, I would never be shaped into the person that God is making me into. None of us in this room are perfect, but all of us that know Jesus Christ are being perfected. We're being made to look like Jesus. But then there's one last thing that he talks about in here that I want you to see in there. He says, for, look at this, obedience to Jesus Christ. There's a goal. There's a goal in God's electing you. Let me just say this. Your salvation from heaven and hell matters, okay? So I'm not saying what I'm ready to say does not matter, but it, it does matter. But the purpose for which he chose you and elected you and had the foreknowledge and sanctified you is not so that you can avoid hell. It is so that you might look like Jesus. Just that obedience. 
See, in some ways, I wonder, even in my own head, if I don't believe this, is that obedience is not merely a byproduct of following Jesus. Obedience is a gift from Jesus. This capacity and ability to be the humans we were intended to be. We now have not only the renewed appetites and renewed desires, but we just look different. A few years ago, and again, maybe sometimes you forget this, but I had gone back to where I was from, and we were kind of all out to eat, and I see this guy across the way that I hadn't seen since I was a kid, you know, and I, I scoot across. It's a bar and grill, you know, so I'm scooting through everybody, and I get to him, and I'm like, Joe, how are you, man? And he goes, Todd, you know, how the, are you? <laughs> Pretty good. I said, man, Joe, what are you doing with your life now? He goes, oh, man, I'm the, I'm the manager of this blankety-blank bar, and man, I, you know, rah, 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 and he just keeps going on. And I, Have you ever had those moments talking to somebody, you feel like you're back in high school again? <laughs> and we get all to this one point, right? And in, in this weird moment as I'm sitting listening to him, it wasn't judgmental towards him at all. I just had this moment where I realized my daddy has changed me. Joe looks back at me, and I'll never forget this. And he goes, man, Todd, what the blank are you doing now? I go, oh, man. I go, I'm a pastor. And he goes, no, blank. And I said, yeah. <laughs> Craziest thing. <laughs> that is not the work of Todd, and though it may rhyme, that is the work of God. It is that transformation in our lives of making us into the people that he intends us to be, nothing because of anything we've done, but because our good God has made us elect exiles. Now, when you pull this all together, and I'm just imagining old Peter sitting there working this through, almost smiling when he's thinking about these people in Bithynia and people in Asia and Cappadocia and Galatia, when he includes in his last statement to them. He says to them, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now what's the big deal with that? What he's talking about there is in the midst of you being an elect exile, in the midst of you being a person that no longer belongs, that your citizenship is now in heaven, you are a unique person that has been put aside to be able to be put on display whom the God, God the Father foreknew, who God the Son then comes in and allows, <laughs> allows you to be able to obey, and who God the Holy Spirit now comes in and sets you apart to be able to be that. He says, in that, not apart from it, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. See, sometimes I think we think away from heartache and difficulty and hardship and what's going on in this world. And that's where I see so many Christians, and we at Cornerstone are going to fight back against this with everything we are. 
Christians do not retreat away from the mission of God and what he's called us to do. Christians run into it. And here's the greatest news in the world is that as Christians run into that mission, as they engage in what God's called them to do, you will find grace and peace. You will not find it away from that mission. You will find it in it. It is in that. Look at that last four up there for the sprinkling of blood. We are going to mess up. Let me just tell you that right now. If you are somebody that thinks you're not going to mess up in this mission, 1 John says you're a liar. In fact, he says in chapter 2 of 1 John that we are in need of an advocate who will come alongside us and be, he says, a propitiation for our sins, a reminder of the work of Jesus in that our sin is not only forgiven in the past and the present, but all of our sin as followers of Jesus has been forgiven in the future. There is grace and there is peace. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talked about this idea in which he was like, no, I think I'm supposed to be away from the pain and the heartache, this thorn in the flesh. And he, he begged God three times, God, please, would you allow me to be able to escape from this? And God said, no, because my grace is sufficient for you in it that my power might be made perfect in your weakness. Grace is in there. In John 16, 33, he said, I said these things to you so that you might have peace and where peace in the world, not being of the world, but being in the world. Peace I give you in it. The promise of the great commission is that lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. As God's people live how God's called them to live, they now are people that encounter this amazing reality of grace and peace. What's grace? It is a power that only comes from our daddy. It is a power that enables us to be the people that he's called us to be. It is a power to see this world like God has called us to see this world. It is a power to go engage with those that are so difficult to engage with. It is a power not to see people as less than me, but actually that power and capacity to see people as ones just like me in desperate need of grace. But it's also peace that in the midst of all the confusion and everything going on around you, it's just right. We're good. We're good. I know it seems crazy. I know right now things seem topsy-turvy. I know it feels like even at times we're wondering, man, what is going to happen? In fact, the one word I hear, keep hearing over and over again, it's only going to get worse as it gets worse, God's grace and his peace are multiplied beyond what is coming our way. We will always be given just enough grace and just enough peace to be multiplied to accomplish the task that we're being called to accomplish. And for those of you in here that are high school students, because I see a few of you, let me just talk to you college students. Quit believing the lie that as things get worse, your parents, your grandparents, you know, the older people feel bad for you. I don't feel bad for you. 
The reason I don't feel bad for you is I believe as followers of Jesus Christ, you've been given the grace and peace to walk in whatever God has for us in the future to be the people that God's called us to be. I don't feel bad for you at all. His grace and his peace will be multiplied. We're good. Does everybody get that? We're good. The next time somebody comes up to you and starts to have a political discussion with you, just give them a hug and say, hey, we're good. (laughs) We're good. The next time somebody's worried about this or that, just grab them by the cheeks and just go, we're good. But let me be blunt and honest. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're not good. This is why we proclaim the message of King Jesus. Because peace isn't just a state of mind, peace is a condition between me and God. And so even today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, today is the best day in the world to bend your knee to the king, to come before him as the one who gives grace and peace, this one who knew you before the foundation of the world, this one that loves you extravagantly, this one that wants to make you and form you and shape you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, this one that wants to put you on display in front of the world to obey like Jesus Christ, and this one that forgives sin. I don't care what your background is. There is no sin to which our God does not forgive through the work of Jesus Christ. And so today is the day that you bend your knee. Aren't you excited about First Peter? It'd be awesome. The rest of First Peter unpacks this. We are going to learn together what it means to be elect exiles of our great God. Remember a few weeks ago when Chris talked about this idea of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in this dance? and us being invited into it, here's the dance. See, God the Father looking at you going, you know, know, everything's wonderful, come dance with me. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of difficulty, he's saying, let's dance. Let me show you off in the midst of this. Let's go. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray over every one of you. If if, if there's somebody that doesn't know Jesus that wants to talk to me today, I'll I'll be right over here later after the service. If there's anybody that needs prayer, we'll be out in the prayer room over here. But I just want to pray over us because I believe this time in 1 Peter is going to be crucial to us being launched out over these next few years to be the people that God's called us to be. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your grace and your peace. Thank you so much that they're multiplied to us. Father, I pray for all of us in this room that know you. Would we not take this text lightly, but Father, would you teach us anew to embrace this identity of what it means to be an elect exile? Father, would you truly do what the song teaches us, to teach us that the things of this world become strangely dim because of the greatness of who you are? 
Would you teach us to walk into difficulty, not run away from it? Would you allow us to be people that stay here, not move away? Would you allow us to be people that truly in the bottom of who we are believe there is no better time and no better place than to live than right now because you placed us here? Father, I beg you, would you teach us anew what it means to be ones that are chosen? Ones that in your foreknowledge, Father, not because you saw it happening, but because you made it happen. You chose us. You made us one of your very own. You, you are shaping us and molding us into the image of your son. And Father, I'm so thankful you chose us to in some way represent you by looking like Jesus in this world. And Father, thank you for forgiving sin. And so we ask all these things, Father, over this body. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. 